and welcome to From the EBPL Archives, Encore Presentations from the East Brunswick Public Library. I am your host, Melissa Hosick. This event was presented as part of our Just for the Health of It initiative. Just for the Health of It is a proprietary health literacy program developed by the East Brunswick Public Library to promote health literacy in Middlesex County. To learn more, visit justforthehealthofit.org. Now, enjoy the program. Welcome, and thank you for joining us this afternoon for the Psychology of Money, Taking a Rational Approach to Managing Your Wealth. My name is Kathy Churn, and I'm a consumer health librarian at East Brunswick Public Library. Today's program is brought to you by the Library's Just for the Health of It initiative to promote community health and wellness. Our speaker today is Bradley Basker, financial advisor at Morgan Stanley in Boston. He works with clients to help build a sustainable financial plan to achieve their financial and life goals and manage their assets for them. Bradley is licensed in New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Florida, and Texas. Bradley has already delivered free webinars focused on financial wellness and literacy to companies, synagogues, schools, alumni networks, and public libraries, and enjoys giving back to his communities in this way. Please be aware that this talk is being recorded. Please keep your microphones muted and your webcams off. The recording will be available at ebpl.org YouTube. If you have any questions, please type them into the chat box. Our speaker will answer questions at the end of the talk. Our speaker presenting will not be able to offer personal investment advice to attendees during this program. And without further ado, I'll turn things over to Bradley. Thanks, Kathy. And thank you everyone for being here today. You know, it's a Friday afternoon. I'm hoping this will be somewhat worth your while uh, with everything we've got going on. But I think this topic is so incredibly important right now. I think with everything that's happened over the last year or so, you know, with our emotional well-being being at the forefront, and our physical well-being with the pandemic that's going on, I think, unfortunately, financial well-being kind of takes the back seat until, unfortunately, it's thrust into the limelight and you kind of realize that perhaps you haven't been prioritizing your financial wellness. And so really my mission in putting on these kinds of seminars around different communities is to make sure that people are thinking about, you know, their financial wellness and well-being. And this topic in particular has been really popular with audiences because I think you kind of peel back the, the onion a little bit and understand kind of what are the, de the decision points we're making and how do we approach certain uh, inflection points in our life when it comes to money and how is that sort of dictating decisions we make and outcomes in our life. And so today we're going to talk about your relationship with your wealth and how your perceptions, biases, and emotions about money can affect the financial decisions that you make. And understanding this complex dynamic and developing strategies for making objective decisions can help you manage your wealth more wisely. Let's talk about what we're going to cover today. So today's agenda, we're going to cover a number of very important topics. We'll first start by talking about your relationship with money. Have you start to think introspectively about who you are, perhaps who your, how your partner is, your family members. All right, then we'll spend some time discussing how emotions might affect money habits, not just your own, but those of perhaps your children, again, your partner, your parents, your family members. Start to think about how those emotions perhaps dictate the decisions that you make. Finally, we'll cover some strategies for changing the way that you think, feel, and act about money. And we'll talk about how working with someone professionally or not might help you develop and stick to a plan for managing your wealth in a manner that is goals-based rather than emotion-driven or knee-jerk reaction-driven. So let's begin by talking about your relationship with money. The reality is wealth is a complex concept and your personal relationship with money may be complicated. In many families, money is a taboo topic, right? Talk of money can bring up a range of complicated feelings from anxiety to embarrassment, guilt, envy, insecurity, sometimes shame, right? I grew up in a, in a household where we did talk about money. We talked about, you know, what the cost of living was. I grew up in Boston in a suburb and I understood sort of what the cost of school was going to be and what the cost of college was and the idea that Money doesn't grow on trees, but you've got other families, like perhaps my wife's, where she was insulated as a child growing up, and they never really talked about, you know, finances. And so every family's got their own sort of approach to having these conversations. Think about kind of how you grew up and your upbringing, how you manage this kind of conversation with your family, because that ultimately is going to dictate, you know, some of the ways that you approach these conversations. And 
the reality is with money, it may call into question what money means to you and your understanding of its significance might be intertwined with deeply held perceptions that you have about love and control, independence, accomplishment, identity, self-esteem, self-worth. I mean, there's so many ways that we sort of relate money to different parts of our lives. And it's important to kind of get a grip on how you approach the concept of money. And relating to money is just as important to relating to the people you care about. And it requires time and effort to understand its implications and to find the proper place for it in your life, right? I like to think of money, right? is something that you have to foster in terms of a relationship in the same way you have a relationship with, you know, your friends and your family, right? you have to understand kind of what your relationship is with money and make sure you get on top of it. So you don't kind of go wayward and make decisions that you regret later. So uh, this is one of my favorite slides to talk about, because I think this is an opportunity for you to really think about who you are. And for those of you that are familiar with the five love languages, right? This is something very similar where I want you to think about of the following five, which I'm going to break down. I want you to think about which of these five is your primary financial personality type, right? You might find that a few of those, you know, check boxes for you, but I want you to think about kind of what is your primary financial personality type and then think about, okay, what strategies can I put in place to perhaps avoid some of the pitfalls and money management habits tend to fit into the following five personality categories. The first one is spenders. Spenders believe that money is meant for spending, and sometimes they spend more money than they should or live above their means because they get caught up in the moment or see something that they absolutely have to have. Spenders are the ones that walk down you know, the aisle in a mall, see something in the window, and they're like, I got to have that. They don't even think about what the price is. They're just like, you know, money is meant for spending. YOLO, you know, you only live once, and that's kind of how they approach those decisions. Savers love to get a good deal. Often, savers are less focused on material possessions. They just like saving. They're the type of person that's you know, going to clip coupons. They're going to go on Groupon to see if they can get a good deal. I would put myself in a saver category. I really like the idea of sort of foregoing the short term for the long term. I love getting a good deal. So that is the saver category. The next one is risk averse personalities. And those people place security and planning as their top concerns above everything else. And they typically prefer proven safe investments, conservative investments, and like to plan and view money as a tool that generates security. So they just are constantly saying, what if, you know, what if there's a rainy day? What if I lose my job? What if my, my, my aging parent gets sick? And they just want to avoid those scenarios. So they're constantly thinking about what the risks are. Then the next personality type is what we call gamblers. Gamblers are willing to take big risks for potentially big payoffs. They might say, you got to risk it for the biscuit. That's a phrase I've heard some people say. And they're driven more by optimism and gut feelings rather than detail and analysis. So you might tell them, listen, uh, the math doesn't add up, this investment doesn't make sense, but they say, I, I got a good feeling about it. I just know in my heart, right? Those are the kind of gambler mentality. You know, a gambler might have a bad stigma in your head, but you know, I don't mean someone who's up to gambling away their whole life and going to the casino you know, all hours of the night. I'm talking just in general, that's kind of how we bucket that person. The person that sort of goes more off of their feeling as opposed to actual you know, uh, empirical data. And then finally, flyers are best described as people who just don't think about money at all, right? They're someone that sort of looks at money as just a mechanism to kind of, you know, make ends meet, get from A to B. And, and they're people that don't sort of fully understand the uh, impact of, you know, spending a dollar now versus, you know, having that in the future. And, you know, my mother-in-law has told me she considers herself a flyer. She just doesn't really think about it so much. Fortunately, my father-in-law has a little bit more of a sense of that. And so they balance each other out. But the reality is, is that your financial personality type can affect your relationship with money and the decisions you make about how to spend, save, and invest it. So I want you to think, you know, we're not going to gauge the audience to see kind of which category you feel like you fit into. If we were in person, perhaps we would have more of a conversation like that. But I want you to think about kind of which of these five you feel like you fit into, and then we can start to address ways that you perhaps mitigate that. Let's look at some of the statistics that are out there. And actually, my former employer, PwC, puts out an employee wellness survey every single year. This is from their 2019 employee wellness survey. And here's some really interesting statistics. 67% of employees are stressed about their finances, right? Two-thirds of employees at some, in some capacity are stressed about their finances. And I always joke and say, what about those other 33%? I mean, it's, it's hard not to be stressed in some form or fashion about finances, making ends meet, paying your rent on time, you know, cost of education, are you going to have enough in retirement? It's hard to believe that a third of people don't even think about that or aren't stressed at all. Now, another interesting statistic is that 
of employees indicate that money matters are their biggest cause of stress. Not surprising. I mean, it's, there's so many things in life that are unfortunately, for better or for worse, dictated by money. And so, you know, thinking about that, we're going to try to think about ways that you can put yourself in a position to not be so stressed about money all the time. And then another statistic I want to throw out there, 35% of people say they spend at least three hours at work thinking about, you know, dealing with issues related to their personal finances. So think about it, right? Your company's paying you good money to work and be focused on the job at, ha at hand during your working hours. But yet many, many people are spending more than three hours thinking about things other than work. And it's mostly about their money. So Again, clearly this is normal. If you're someone that does think about their money a lot or their finances and gets stressed out, you're in good company. It's hard not to be stressed in some capacity. So for many people, there's an emotional connection between money and safety and security or self-worth. And financial stress can have adverse consequences. I'm not a doctor, but I've spoken to many people who've told me, you know, as potential clients or clients about sort of the things that worrying about money has done to them. And we talk about you know, anxiety, all right, panic, uh, you know, insomnia, lying awake at night, staring at your ceiling, wondering, you know, what's going to happen, marital conflict. I mean, talking about money can be very stressful, especially, you know, if one, perhaps one person in the household has one perspective on how things should be done. And another person says, we don't have enough to do that, we should be saving. And so there are many adverse consequences about, you know, being stressed about money. And so exploring your relationship with money and understanding how your emotions affect the decisions that you make can help actually alleviate that financial stress and help you focus on managing your wealth more wisely to achieve your financial goals. So again, get a grip on kind of what your emotions are. How do you approach that thinking? Get your psychology sort of in one place. And then we can start to put strategies in place to go forward accordingly. So let's face it, we aren't particularly rational creatures when it comes to money. And in fact, the full range of emotions, guilt, sadness, anger, happiness, can help or hurt your financial decision-making. Let's dive a little bit deeper. And so money is an emotional topic. And so for example, how do you feel when your bank account balance is running low and you see sort of a lower amount than you expected, right? It probably doesn't feel so good. You start to perhaps panic or think about whether, you know, something bad's going to happen. And you're not going to be able to, again, pay your bills on time and be able to put food on the table, All right? So sometimes our feelings towards money might be so strong that we actually start to blame you know, money for being the cause of all our problems, rather than sort of looking at underlying symptoms that might be contributing to it. Now, on the flip side, you know, how would you feel if you found out you won the lottery, right? A sudden large sum of money might change the way that you feel and act, and it might even influence the way people treat you. You might find yourself sort of walking around with your chest puffed out and seeing that people who otherwise perhaps didn't give you the time of day, give you the time of day, and that might feel good. And so clearly, kind of our circumstances are going to dictate how we feel about money and our emotions that they're in. And no matter how much money you have, you know, money may evoke strong emotions. And often those emotions are tied to deeply held and often subconscious beliefs about money. But where do our feelings about money come from? Let's dive into that. Now, your feelings, beliefs, and attitudes about money probably and likely stem from your childhood. You know, how your parents handled money often provides the foundation for how you might handle money. That's not to say that everyone's like that, but I feel like I'm very similar in how I approach these conversations to how my parents did and how I sort of saw them growing up and how we used to talk about it. Your feelings about money might also be influenced by your education or perhaps lack thereof. And for most people, formal schooling did not include financial education, which leaves you know, people without the basic tools to create a financial roadmap. You know, one of the biggest crusades that I'm on right now is reaching back out to my former schools and saying, I'd love to put on you know, one or two sessions for rising, you know, graduates from high school to sort of talk to them about what's to come so that they're not blindsided when they get into the real world. And so it's totally fair to, you know, say that I, I didn't grow up with an education around, you know, financial planning and sort of getting my psychology right. And the way that you feel about money might also be shaped by your conceptions or perhaps misconceptions about money. For example, you need to make money, you need to, you need money to make money is what some people, you know, might say. But the reality is, a very little amount of money can help you grow into a lot of money if you take the right steps and sort of get yourself going on the right track. So don't let your circumstances kind of dictate, you know, the fact that, you know, you have to stay in, the, in a rut or you can't sort of grow and expand who you are, you know, financially. And once you've done all that and you've examined and understood your feelings, beliefs, and attitudes towards money, that's really only the first step to making more rational, informed decisions about your money. 
but also imparting good habits on your children for those of you that have children or perhaps grandchildren. So it's not just about, you know, getting your mind right. But once you do that, you can really start to cascade that to people in your life, especially your children. So your emotional, uh, your emotional responses to thinking about money can have a powerful impact on your spending. Let's break down some of these in particular. First one is sadness. And there's a reason they say, you know, shopping is retail therapy because buying things can make you feel better, at least temporarily, right? Think about the classic, you're feeling sad and you go into, you know, the freezer and you eat a pint of ice cream because doing certain things that perhaps in the short term feel good are, are great and they help mitigate some of that sadness, but it's really just a band-aid and it, it sort of doesn't actually get to the underlying issues and causes to help you mitigate that. And so sadness will also increase the amount of money that you're willing to spend and more likely to give up a larger benefit in the future for a smaller benefit now. And so that's, again, thinking about, you know, am I someone that gets sad often about when it comes to having these conversations and do I forego future benefits for sort of immediate uh, benefits right now? And the next one is anger. Angry people tend to take bigger risks and dig in their heels when their choices are questioned, even if they made a mistake, right? How many people do you know, even if it's not yourself, that when they get sort of angry and stubborn, they oftentimes make even worse decisions because they're not thinking clearly. So if you're someone that often gets angry, make sure you are aware of that so you don't make decisions that you regret later when the dust settles. The next one is fear. Fear can play a huge role in your financial life. For example, fear of running out of money in retirement can motivate you to save. So that's maybe a good thing. Or fear of leaving your loved ones unprotected can motivate you to buy life insurance. Also a, a good form of fear. But fear might also lead you to exaggerate the risk or second guess yourself, causing you to abandon your original plan of action, right? You've got a plan in place. You said, I'm going to stick to it. Something happens. You start to panic and you completely abandon the plan altogether and you don't sort of keep your eye on the bigger picture. The next one is guilt, right? We feel guilt when we violate our internal standards. So for example, if you value family, but perhaps spend too much time working, you're at the office late, or you're someone like me who used to travel Monday to Thursday every single week for work as a consultant, I did feel a lot of guilt about the fact that I wasn't around for my, at the time, girlfriend and fiance and now wife. And so I, I, I found myself kind of making up for that by buying things like expensive gifts, just again, to feel better about myself for the fact that I wasn't around. And that's, again, not exactly a healthy uh, habit to have. And then finally, really the best emotion you can have is gratitude. Feeling thankful can reduce the economic impatience and help you delay gratification. If you tell yourself, I'm grateful for what I have, I have everything I need, I'm going to plan for the future and save so that perhaps when there's a day that I, I don't have everything that I need, I'll have something for backup. And when you're grateful, you don't make some of those decisions that perhaps, you know, forego those, those future goals that you have. Now, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, mistake anyone in thinking that you don't need money to live. We all do need money to live. Some, for some it's less, some it's more, but money can sometimes make life easier and more comfortable or provide access to better services. So yes, I'm not trying to dispel the notion, you know, you wouldn't be here today if money didn't mean anything at all, but the pursuit of money can become ineffective if you allow it to consume you. And I want to call out some of the common pitfalls that I see when it comes to accumulating long-term wealth. The first one is confusing high income with high wealth. Having a high income does not guarantee wealth, especially if you have a high amount of debt. Because when building long-term wealth, your debt is just as, if not more important than your income. The truly wealthy have a high income and low debt, right? So think about it. If you're someone that you know, gets a couple thousand dollars a month in a paycheck, but you immediately go around and you spend that on things that are perhaps frivolous, you don't need to spend on, you're not accumulating any wealth. God forbid you lose your job or you get sick, you're not going to have sort of that backup that you need because essentially what's coming in the door is going out the door. We want to make sure that we take what we bring in and we are putting some of it away to start to accumulate that wealth. The next one is being driven by materialism and consumerism, trying to keep up with the Joneses, as we say, right? Keeping up with someone who's got the best gadgets or cars or the newest iPhone or having the biggest house, that can lead to overspending and an over-reliance on credit, both of which can derail you from achieving your long-term goals. Right. The next one is using money as a form of validation. Right. Sometimes we feel better about ourselves when we have the latest iPhone or walk around in designer labels. But these feelings of validation are typically transient and short lived and can lead to a never ending cycle of spending and short term validation. You never sort of feel fulfilled because you're constantly sort of looking over your shoulder and saying, you know, this person has it or I need to sort of have this materialistic good in order to feel good about myself. We shouldn't be tying 
our self-worth to that. And then finally, I'm going to skip to the fifth one, needing instant gratification. I don't know if this is as much of an issue with sort of the older generation, perhaps my parents' generation, but perhaps with millennials, Gen Z, everything is so instantaneous now. Everyone wants everything immediately. You know, you can pay folks immediately with Venmo. You can, you know, get an Uber instantaneously. You know, you can have something on your doorstep within a couple hours with Amazon, right? We're now wired to want everything immediately. And when you sort of can get things so quickly, you don't have to, you know, go out there and hand over a dollar bill manually. You can just do everything digitally. You know, we oftentimes will think about sort of what's in front of us immediately and not term, not think about sort of the long term. And so I want you to think about, are you the type of person that sort of looks for that instant gratification? And are you perhaps shortchanging yourself for the future? And so money can enhance your life, but it really shouldn't revolve around it, right? Money should not be the be-all end-all for you. It should just be a mechanism to help you get to where you want to get to in life. And the key to finding, you know, long-term wealth is finding that balance between getting the short, the medium, and the long-term. Okay, so now we've talked about, you know, how emotions can affect the decisions that we make about money, and hopefully it stirred up some thinking about you and your partner and perhaps your family, but how can we shift the paradigm in our favor? So let's take a few more moments to explore some of the things that you can do to change the way that you think, feel, and act about money. So I've got a, a list of ideas for you, you know, in, on the slide here of ways that you can improve your relationship with money. But I always like to joke, you know, the best way to improve your relationship with money would be the same way that you'd go about improving any relationship through love. You can't enjoy a good relationship with money unless you're willing to love it through thick and through thin, through ups and through downs. And love is a choice and an intention, not only an emotion, but also a behavior. Changing your behaviors when it comes to money can help you develop a healthier attitude towards your wealth. And your relationship with money will improve as long as you honor it in the same way that you honor the other important relationships in your, in your lives. You might be laughing and saying, Bradley, that's ridiculous. Money's not a person. How do I you know, do that? But the reality is you just need to dedicate the time to sort of having a healthy relationship when it comes to thinking about money so that you treat yourself you know, with the same level of care as you would treat other people in your life. And so, like I said, this slide lists 12 ways to improve your relationship with money, the same way you would improve a relationship with any person. But I want to talk about the last three in particular. This is a huge one. Recognizing the difference between what you want and what you need can help you keep your spending aligned with your current financial situation, as well as your overall financial objectives and goals. Right? Every decision that you make affects your ability to achieve financial security in the short, medium, and long term. And so understanding your triggers for that immediate gratification that, or overspending can help you focus on those long-term goals so you can prioritize perhaps you know, your short-term spending to be in line with that. Right? So again, if you're someone that walks in the mall and says the following phrases, I gotta have that, I need to have that, you know, I, I must have that, or you know, this is something you know, I, have to, I have to get right now. So you're, you're, that's what it sounds like to you as a need, but if you take a step back, think about, it. is that a need or is that a want? A need is insurance, groceries, paying your rent, perhaps, uh, you know, perhaps Christmas time, you get a gift for, for family, but do you need to be getting them gifts throughout the year? That perhaps is a want. Do you need that 75 inch TV or do you want that? And so when you start to think about the needs and the wants and you start to bucket them, you'll find yourself realizing, actually, you know what? If, if the difference between perhaps, you know, saving for retirement is getting this $1,500, 75 inch flat screen TV, when I could get, you know, a 40 inch TV for a fraction of the price, yeah, when you start to think about those needs versus wants, you'll find yourself in a better relationship with money. The next one is seeking clarity, you know, uh, as it relates to taking time to fully understand a situation before responding to it, right? If you're in a situation where you feel like you're about to pull the trigger on a purchase, maybe take a step back, go for a walk, go do some exercise, get up in the shower, take a step away from the computer for wherever you are, come back to it. Perhaps you'll have clarity about whether you actually want to go through with it, and it'll help avoid sort of those knee-jerk responses or emotional reactions that you might have. And then finally, Having faith in your long-term vision is particularly important because markets are volatile and irrational. For those of you that have been invested in the market in some way this year, we saw the market tank in March and April. It's recovered inexplicably with everything that's going on with the pandemic and in Washington. Somehow the markets are just up one day, down another day, and it doesn't really make a ton of sense. And so in the same way, your life can change in unexpected or unforeseen ways. And nothing is static. And the same is true with your relationship with money, right? Keeping sight of your long-term vision through the ups and downs of the market, and the ups and downs of your life, you know, can help you stay the course. Now, that doesn't mean I'm saying, you know, completely, you know, stick, start with a plan and never evaluate it over time. 
but it means don't sort of look day to day at how things are going. Try to have a big picture perspective, perhaps quarterly, every six months, every year. Look at how you're doing according to that plan and then adjust as needed. So how do you avoid making knee-jerk reactions and stay focused on the long-term vision? First thing is slow down your thinking and separate facts from fiction. Make decisions based on data and analysis rather than emotion or gut feeling. We talked about how the gambler just sort of goes off of emotion and gut feeling. But I like to say, if you say to yourself, I think I'm saving enough, I think I'm saving, I'm spending less than I'm bringing in every month, rather than sort of just going off of what you think in your head, take out a pen and paper, look at your credit card statements, look at your you know, deposit slips from work, and see what's the difference. How much is left over at the end of every month, right? Use that data and analysis rather than going off of gut feeling. And that's where a financial advisor like myself can kind of help you look at that market uh, um, and, and your own situation with clarity and objectivity and help you sort of filter through those decisions. And then also it's important to align your spending and savings with your values and goals rather than your short-term ones, right? So having a roadmap that you put in place to manage that wealth remove some of the emotion and more easily reveals irrational biases that you might have. The next thing is talking to your family. And for some of you, this might be a little bit of an awkward conversation or awkward topic, but having meaningful family conversations about money, in my opinion, is an essential part of any family wealth management strategy, especially as an increasing number of families are sandwiched between the, in the role between taking care of aging parents and taking care of their children. It's hard to avoid this topic, whether you like it or not. And talking about money can be an empowering first step to forming a healthy relationship with wealth. And families that succeed in having these effective discussions about money are oftentimes better equipped to use their financial capital to leverage the value of their family, their intellectual and social capital. So some of the things you might want to talk about, perhaps this is a conversation to have with your partner over dinner, or you talk with your kids, or especially if they're older and they're able to have more of a mature conversation, right? what money means to you, why you've worked so hard to acquire it. You know, kind of what family history might be intertwined with its acquisition? Kind of is there any you know, family trauma when it comes to money or any reason why perhaps someone has a perception that is misguided? You know, what challenges and responsibilities the company having money? I think that's an important conversation to have with your kids. And actually next month we have a topic through the East Brunswick Library called Raising Money Savvy Kids, where we dive a little bit more into that. And then the last one is what your family wants to accomplish with it. Talk about kind of what are those goals? What you know, how is money going to get you to sort of those that end game and, and what kind of roadblocks could you see yourself hitting on the way? So defining your goals and then having a wealth, wealth management strategy that aligns with those goals is another way to change the way you think about money. And so setting goals and tracking your progress over time helps you set realistic expectations about your financial future. It's important to think about, okay, what do I want to get? Do I want to buy a home? Do I want to buy a home that's $500,000? Do I want to buy a home that's you know, $5 million? Do I want to save for retirement and live in Florida where there's no state income tax? Or do I want to stay in New Jersey and, you know, perhaps have a higher cost of living? So when you start to think about those goals, then you can put in place a strategy to help get there. And so on this slide, you can see here are some of the goals that people often will think about. And you want to make sure that you kind of prioritize those. Think about kind of what is the must to have? What is, if I can also manage this, I'd like to have these goals as well. Now, why is it important to kind of think about actual planning and goal, it's because sometimes expectations don't always line up with actual experience. So for example, after 30 years of research from the Employee Benefit Research Institute, it shows that nearly half of workers actually retire earlier than they planned. You're probably thinking, okay, that, that sounds great. That means people are ready for retirement younger. They can enjoy their retirement. Well, that's great. But guess what that means? That means more years of not having a stable income coming in the door and therefore, they have to make sure that they actually have more money than they originally anticipate. So being ready for that day where perhaps you're forced to retire, perhaps, you know, you have a health issue that precludes you from working, right? You want to make sure that you're prepared because oftentimes expectations 20, 30 years in the future don't always plan out, play out that way. Okay, so I want to, I want to give you some sort of tidbits that you can sort of take away to start to think about how you can alleviate that financial stress. And I think the biggest one, you know, is saving. So here's some ways that you can put extra money towards your savings. The first one is to pay yourself first. What this means is transferring a portion of your salary to savings first before you start to take care of other optional expenses. So strategies like participating in your company's 401k, 403b, 457 plan, right, where that money goes in pre-tax before it even hits your checking account, that money goes away and you're not touching it until retirement. Right, or having a health savings plan, if you've got a high deductible 
insurance plan, putting that money away pre-tax before it hits your checking account towards medical expenses. So pay yourself first before you put yourself in a position to you know, have that you know, lure of perhaps spending it on something you regret later. If you just pay yourself first, a really, really good tactic to uh, start to have that very healthy relationship with your money. The next one is to trim spending by changing your habits. So we all have regular habits like buying a morning latte or going out for lunch every single day, perhaps spending 10 to $12 every day on lunch when it'd be much more cost effective to perhaps make your own lunch. You know, like the old days when you'd send your kids or you growing up had a lunch bag and you bring that to work and you made your own sandwich. So think about ways that you can cut back on those expenses. And you might say to me, Bradley, what does a $4 latte at Starbucks mean for me? I mean, big picture. Well, it adds up $4 every day, you know, every workday, let's say it's 20 days in a month, that's 240 days in a year. That's almost $1,000 you could save that could be doing a lot more work for you if it was invested. So think about ways that you could potentially cut back. The next one is take advantage of tax benefits. And for some of you, that might not mean a lot because you don't even know where to start. I'm happy to, you know, answer any questions offline about some of those things. But that's, for example, there's many ways that you might be able to decrease the amount of tax that you owe through personal and retirement savings. I've talked about the 401k. You defer you know, the taxes till the future. It decreases your taxable income because you've put it away pre-tax. There's also things like 529 college savings plans where you can invest money for your children to go to college. And the gains on those investments are tax deferred. And if you use it for college, completely tax-free rather than investing in a taxable you know, an account where if you take that money out, you're going to have to pay capital gains tax. So there are many ways that the IRS has put in place for you to decrease your tax obligation and keep more of that money in your own pocket. And like I said, I'm happy for any of you to reach out. We can talk more about that in detail. And then finally, I think this is probably the most important thing that I can impart on you and you can impart on your kids as well is the most important asset you have is time to leverage the power of what we call compounded interest by saving earlier in life and taking advantage of interest on interest, right? If you just sort of invest now, continue to invest a little bit of every, you know, every period, and I'm gonna show you an illustration coming up, and you just keep that money invested as those earnings continue to compound on each other, you'll really see an acceleration of growth, more so than if you sort of put your money in, take it out, put it in checking, put back in the market, take it out, right? You're gonna miss out on some of those gains. And let's look at an example that really illustrates that point. So we've got two characters here. We've got John and Jane. They both say, you know what, we want to save, but they start at different stages of their life. John decides, you know, in his 20s and 30s, he's going to live his life. He's a bachelor. He's just li living large. But, you know, what? he gets to 40 years old and he says, you know what, for the next 25 years until 65, I'm going to put away $3,500 a year for a total of $87,500. And we're going to assume he invested in the market and he gets about 8% annually return on his investment, which is a fair amount based on sort of how the markets have responded annualized, you know, over the last hundred years or so. So, okay, puts in 3,500 a year, every year for 25 years, earns 8%. At the end of those 25 years, his investment of 87,500 has turned into $255,000. Again, using our assumption of the return. That's great. He's tripled his money. That probably sounds really, really good to many of you out there. Okay, but let's look at Jane. Jane is someone, she's just out of college. She has money that she wants to start saving and she puts away $3,500 every year. And she does that for 25 years until she's 50. And then she lets the money ride from 50 to 65. So she just starts 15 years earlier. She puts in the exact same amount of money, but because she started 15 years earlier and she let her money grow on itself over time, she's looking at $811,000, almost 10 times what she invested is what that money's worth in the future, almost $600,000 more than John. And so what I'm trying to illustrate here is it's never too late to start saving. If, if you're John and you're 40 years old, now's the great time to start. If you're 25, if you're 55, I don't care how old you are, the, it's, there's never a better time to start saving than the present. There's an old adage, the best time to start saving was yesterday, the second best time to start saving is today. So again, I just wanted to illustrate with, with cold hard numbers, kind of what that impact would be of starting early, even if it's a small amount and letting it grow over time. Now. The last thing I want to talk about when it comes to sort of some tactics that you can take for yourself is that, you know, debt is inevitable for most people. For example, your mortgage, right? A lot of people take out a mortgage to pay for a home. It's, it's really hard to buy a home purely in cash, but it's important to take control over your debt so that it doesn't control you. Many of ourselves feel, you know, overextended at some point in our lives, and it could happen because of reduced income. Perhaps you lost your job or unusual expenses. Maybe like me, I just had a newborn a month ago and I 
our credit card bill is much higher this month because we have to buy a stroller and a car seat. Those of you who have kids probably know what I'm talking about. Or you might just have had a few months where you overspent. Perhaps it's around Christmas time, Black Friday, you just ended up spending more than you anticipated. So sometimes the first response is to deny or attempt to justify it, but your debts don't have to feel crushing or hopeless, right? They're a problem for which there is a solution. I wanna give you some tactics that you can take into your life to really start to think about how do I decrease my debt? And the first one is stop relying on borrowing. However painful it might seem, the first step to digging out from excessive debt is to stop borrowing more and just compounding that issue. Think ahead, save up for major purchases, then pay in cash, right? If you're gonna, if you're gonna buy a home, you're gonna save yourself a lot of money if you're able to put 20% down rather than less than that. And you're gonna have to pay more interest, right? If you have the ability to actually pay with money that you've built up rather than just borrowing and paying that high cost of debt, you're gonna find yourself in a much better financial situation. The next one is repaying the highest cost debt first. So if you're someone who has student loans and you have a car loan and you have all these different things, if you have the ability to pay off sort of more at front, up front or apply an extra payment to certain individual months, try to do that to the highest cost debt. So if something is char charging you 6% debt or interest and another one's charging you 2%, I would say really try to focus on paying off that 6% as fast as you can before you prioritize the 2%. Now, obviously you wanna make sure you're not delinquent on the 2% debt, but I'm just saying, if you have to decide which one should I pay off more first, obviously focus on the one that has the highest interest rate. Let's move on to credit cards. I think the biggest thing right now, it's the second biggest uh, you know, debt pool in the country behind student loan debt is credit card debt, right? In the past, in my parents' generation, before credit cards were around, you had to take out a $20 bill and hand it over to the cashier and feel the impact of handing over that money. Now it is so easy to just swipe a credit card. Sometimes even with things like Uber, you don't even have to swipe a credit card. It's just already in the system. It, debit, it, it debits it from your account. You never even have to worry about it. And so I think credit card debt is a huge problem because it's so easy to just swipe, 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 swipe when you don't necessarily have the money in the bank to be able to afford it. So again, some ideas with regard to credit card debt, pay on time, right? Don't let those bills run long because it's really gonna affect your credit score, which in turn is gonna hurt you getting good interest rates on things like mortgages and other different loans. For those of you that are still renting your homes, Right? You probably know that landlords will ask to run a credit score. And if you don't pay your credit cards on time, that's going to hurt your credit score. Also, make sure you avoid you know, impulse buying. It's so easy, like I said, to spend money so quickly on a credit card. You can just go to a mall, swipe, 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 swipe. You never feel the impact. And then you find yourself with a credit card bill that's much higher than you expected. So again, take a step back. Perhaps tell yourself, um, you know, bring cash to the mall instead of a credit card, knowing that you only can spend the amount of cash you bring. Um, that's another, another good thing that I would say, you know, will get you to sort of cut back on that sort of excessive credit card spending. All right, so let's bring it all together and uh, wrap this up and we'll leave some time for questions. So keep in mind that goals-based strategies go beyond just investments. A lot of people think, okay, well, I want to start planning. I'm just going to invest. Well, goals-based wealth management, which is kind of what Morgan Stanley really subscribes to and I really am a big believer in, is a holistic approach that concentrates on helping you build the life that you wish to lead. So to do this, you wanna think about, you know, the different offerings and services that are centered around you and customized to your needs. You know, so think about, are you someone that wants to prioritize philanthropy as well as having insurance for your family and having estate planning, God forbid, you know, you pass away or you're aging and you wanna make sure that your kids are protected, you know, with a will and things like that. So starting to think about all those different parts of your financial picture, will help you sort of have a better mentality when it comes to your money. Now, this is Morgan Stanley's sort of four-part approach to uh, you know, goals-based wealth management. You can, whether you work with a professional or not, this is something that you can take back and really integrate into your own life. And there's really four, four phases that I wanna talk about. The first one is discover, right? Where you have a conversation with yourself, with your partner, with a financial advisor to help uncover what those goals are and understand your entire financial picture. It all, it's all well and good to think about what your goals are, but you have to think about, okay, well, where am I today and how practical and probable is it for me to reach those goals? And if we're on track, you know, you want to make sure, um, or sorry, off track, we want to make sure that we can get you on track. So that's part of the discovery process. Then the next step is what we call advise. We sort of take a step back and we look at different scenarios based on the situation that you provided to sort of say what might be appropriate strategies to help meet those goals. Then we implement, right? We actually execute based on whichever one of those plans we decide to go with. And we wanna make sure we have the right combination to help meet your spending needs, but also to invest in a tax efficient manner that's gonna grow over time. 
And then finally, I think this is very important, and a lot of people leave this off when they think about wealth management planning, which is to track your progress. Right? Following your financial roadmap requires vigilance and flexibility, and you know, make sure you monitor your progress in real time. That doesn't mean day to day. When I say real time, I mean perhaps every quarter, every six months, every year. Take a look. How am I doing according to my plan? Am I veering off track? Again, we do this all the time with our clients to sort of look at, again, here's where we were. Here's where we're trying to get to based on how things have been performing in terms of investments, based on how much money you've been sort of saving and putting away, you're, you're veering off track right now. We got to sort of either pick that up. We got to cut back on your spending. We got to figure out some way to kind of get back on track. So what I'm not saying is abandon the plan altogether, but it's important to be adaptable and flexible with your plan to sort of adjust as needed. If anything that you take away from this presentation, it's this. It's the important thing is to just get started. These goals aren't getting any closer, and the longer you wait, the more difficult it's going to be to reach them. And in an increasingly complex and ever-changing world with everything that's going on worldwide with the pandemic, it's going on in Washington, it's so important to have a plan and stick to it because it'll help you avoid some of those pitfalls that we talk about when you kind of are just sort of flying by the seat of your pants and you don't really have a plan in place. Figuring it out or saying, I'll, I'll, I'll figure it out when I get there, or I'm in my 20s and 30s, I don't need to worry about it, or I'm, I'm in my 40s, I'm not retiring for a couple of years, right? That's just not going to cut it anymore because cost of living is going up. Inflation is obviously deteriorating the value of our dollar. We've got to continue to think about it because the reality is at some point it's going to catch up to you. And so when you understand your psychology about money, it'll be instrumental to setting you up and your family up for long-term sustained success, right? I started by talking about the psychology of money because it's so important that first you get a grip on kind of who you are, what makes you tick, what are your trigger points. And once you do that, you can start to sort of put a plan in place to ensure that you don't sort of fall by the wayside or fall off track. So I'd love to stay in touch. Uh, obviously, we're going to have a Q&A here, but if there's any question that's a little bit more specific to you or you'd like to have a consultation of some kind, you know, please reach out. Here's my email and my phone number. I'll ask Kathy to share that as well with registrants in addition to the flyer that will be sent out with sort of a recap of some of the topics we discussed here today. And then finally, I'll say again, you know, thank you obviously to uh, the East Brunswick Public Library uh, for bringing me in. January happens to be Financial Wellness Month in the United States. And so I'd ask if you know of anyone that perhaps is in need of a financial wellness, you know, discussion, or you're in another, perhaps a community, an organization that could use a seminar of this kind. You know, we do many different topics, you know, with people in all walks of life you know, please feel free to reach out to me. I'm always happy to do these types of seminars complimentary to continue to sort of spread financial education and literacy. And just in terms of marking your calendars and spreading the word, we do have a couple more seminars coming up through the East Brunswick Public Library. Again, I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Coming up in two weeks, same time, same place, we have a topic called Financial Freedom, Building Wealth to Live the Life You Love. That one goes a step further from what we talked about today. And we start to talk about different parts of building sustainable financial life. So thinking about, you know, saving, credit scores, buying a home, uh, you know, investing in different investment vehicles and sort of having different types of accounts for different purposes. I mean, it's really a complete plan. So if you're someone that perhaps has think, been thinking to themselves, I don't know what I'm doing, that's really a great topic for you to join in on. And then coming up next month, we've got two topics that are really geared towards parents, grandparents, and perhaps future parents who are thinking about having kids First one is raising money savvy kids. We're going to talk about ways to sort of have conversations or what I like to call the money talk with your kids to make sure that they perhaps avoid some of the pitfalls you had growing up and, uh, you know, make sure you know how to have that conversation and put in place, you know, a, a healthy relationship with your kids when it comes to money. And then coming up a couple weeks after that, we have a topic called 529 college savings plans. Where we talk about really what I like to think is the most underrated, but really the most advantageous tax appropriate investment vehicle for people that are trying to save up to put their kids through college and not, you know, have to be saddled with a huge tax bill, that a huge, uh, huge bill that they didn't realize was coming. Um, we'll talk more about that and help you get squared away if you want to start setting that up for yourself. So at this point, I'm going to stop sharing my screen. I'm going to pass it over back to Kathy, and I'd love to answer any questions from the audience. Thank you for being here today, and uh, let's catch up. Right, and thank you, Bradley, for your great presentation. Um, so right now we're doing Q&A. So if you have any questions, please type them into the chat box. Um, so there's just a question if you could bring up slide 20 again. Slide 20. Give me a second. 
for those for anyone who asked that question, I'd love to hear more about you know what what in particular piqued your interest. Okay, so the comment is uh, perfect. Thank you. I understand the concept of starting early, but I'm a little unsure of the actual mechanics of it. So I, I guess I, I we can we can talk more. I'd love you know to know a little bit more what you mean by that. But what I'll say is this: you know, when I say starting early, I just mean you know one of the biggest misconceptions is that when you have a savings account or a high yield savings account, some of you might have let's say at, at Marcus or an Ally Bank or a savings account. Yes, you're saving money. It's not going to decrease in value. But when interest rates are so low, right now interest rates are less you know, than 1%. You're getting really nothing on your dollar. What I'm saying is if you kind of get started saving, you know, putting what you need in a savings account, but putting the rest into sort of an investment that's going to grow and outpace inflation, which is usually 2 or 3%, you're, uh, you're going to find that your money is actually worth a lot more uh, because it's going to grow. And when you leave that money in, to grow on itself and you don't sort of take it out when the market dips a little bit and then you end up missing the upswing like many people did with uh, what happened with COVID. And that's a really good way to just kind of have, uh, you know, a way to grow your money in a way that keeps up with inflation over time. And um, as you can see here, it just takes a little bit putting in every month. What I'm saying is, you know, it says 3,500 a year, divide that by 12, put $300 every single month into the market in some form or fashion. And just, again, obviously you want to do a savvy investment. You don't want to just put it all in, in one company. Again, that's what I work with clients on is building a portfolio that's diversified and allows them to sort of withstand the ups and the downs. But the point is, is if you don't get started at all and you just keep all your money in a checking or savings account, your purchasing power is actually being deteriorated over time because your dollar is getting less and less valuable as inflation goes up and your savings percentage or savings interest rate is less than 1%. So if I have anything I can share with you, it's that, you know, try to get some of that money out of savings, put it into some sort of investment vehicle. And if you'd like to reach out, I can talk to you more about that offline. Saw, saw a few chats pop up. Did uh, any, any questions? Oh, here we go. Got it. Okay. So the question is, if, if they put in, invested the same amount at the same rate, the same length of time, how much did, how did it compound so much fast? How many was it worth so much more? The answer is, Jane started 15 years earlier. So her money got going for her much earlier. And they both ended up, the sort of the finish line of this example is 65 years old. Jane put in all of her money between 25 and 50 years old. And then the remaining 15 years sort of let it, let it run. John only started at 40 and went to 65, put in the same amount of money. So the difference is time. And that's what I wanted to communicate with this slide is that you can't make up for lost time. And so having an extra 15 years where that money could continue to grow again. We're using an assumption that the markets grow at about 8% or so every year. So you have to kind of keep that in mind. If it was 2%, the gap would be less. If it was 15%, the gap would be even more. So I'm just using this as an example, but that's the difference is that Jane started 15 years earlier, left her money in, continued to save, and it continued to grow on itself. And hopefully that makes sense. Exactly. So John's saying, you know, it's exactly. It's at, both at 65 years old, which is considered retirement, I should have made that clear. Exactly. So she, she just let her money go for 40 years. She only put it in for 25, just as John did. She just started 15 years earlier. Okay. And then received a comment for your brilliant presentation, Bradley. Do you also cover ideas on how to grow the income side of the equation, especially for those who are playing catch up? Thanks. Yeah. Um, so I would tell you, that's something that's interesting. No one's actually ever asked me that before. I can't necessarily, you know, obviously make you make more money in terms of your salary, but I'm, I definitely can think of creative ways to kind of perhaps keep more money in your pocket than having to give it, you know, to Uncle Sam every year in taxes and finding ways to perhaps, you know, get, get good investments that make more money in your pocket. But in terms of sort of increasing something like your salary or, or you know, a quick buck, you know, kind of cutting corners to make a lot of money, something like that doesn't exist, but there are ways to sort of keep more of your money, which in turn sort of means you have more income and more of an ability to, to save for the future. And, and again, I would encourage anyone, if, if you want to reach out, you know, I don't ever charge for having conversations and I, I like doing these kinds of consultations to answer your questions about your specific situation. So please feel free to reach out. Um, I did get an interesting question that is personalized. I'm obviously not going to say who asked the question, but she said, 
I'm retired, I have a pension, social security and alimony and would like to start saving for legacy purposes, perhaps to help with college costs for grandchildren. Would an IRA be best for legacy? My daughter has a 529 plan for her kids. Should I just contribute to that? So great question. Um, 529 plans are actually a really good way to, to help sort of secure your legacy. And what it does is even though you still own the funds that you put in a 529 plan, if you open your own account, uh, what it does is actually decreases your, decreases your estate. So let's say, God forbid, you pass away and the money in the 529 plan has been designated for, let's say, a few different grandchildren. That money is not taxable when, let's say, your kids inherit it from you. So 529 plans are really a great way to avoid sort of having to saddle, you know, your, your children, your grandchildren with uh, a tax bill. Um, I, but th there's a lot more nuance to that question. I, I, I don't think we have time for that today. But I think 529 plans, since you mentioned that, is a really great way to do that because you still own the funds. You have every right to retract it if you want and keep it for yourself. Uh, there's a little bit of a penalty to doing that, but the point is it's still your money. But at the same time, if you were to pass away, it is out of your estate um, and and not taxable. So 529 plans are a great way to do that. The, the other thing I would say is if you're someone, especially younger people, if you're thinking about leaving a legacy, I think a lot of people like don't think about uh, life insurance. That's a great way to make sure that your family is protected in the future. God forbid you pass away. It's much cheaper to start with life insurance when you're younger and healthier. And so if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, it might make sense for you to get life insurance now um, if you're concerned about perhaps leaving something for, you know, your children, your grandchildren one day. Again, I'm, I'm licensed to talk about life insurance, so we could do that, you know, offline as well. Great questions, everyone. Okay, so I think that's it for questions. So thank you, Bradley, for taking the time to present on this topic and to answer all our questions. And the next talk in this series is Financial Freedom, Building Wealth to Live the Life You Love on Friday, January 22nd at 12 p.m. noon. So we hope to see you there. So thank you, everyone, for attending and joining us for today's talk. And take care and stay safe. Thank you for joining us for this week's Encore presentation. To join us for live programs or to learn more about the East Brunswick Public Library, visit our website at ebpl.org.